Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. It's Legal Roundtable Day, and as usual, lots to talk about, including a married lesbian couple ready to go to legal war with a retirement center that will not open its doors to that pair. There are some red faces after Washington University students were stopped by police in Clayton, and we're approaching an anniversary in Ferguson. It's all on our plate today. With me in studio, our roundtable attorney panelists, Bill Freivogel, professor of journalism at SIU in Carbondale. Dan Epps is associate professor of law at Washington University. And Blake Strode is executive director of Arch City Defenders. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being with us. Great to have you. Thank you. Hi. I'd like to start with that uh, case of the mar- married lesbian couple. They have filed suit in uh, federal court after having been refused admission to a Sunset Hills senior community because of their sexual orientation. They cite Federal Fair Housing Act and the Missouri Human Rights Act. Bill, what kind of a case do you think they have? Well, I think it's uh, probably a close case. I, I think we don't really know how it will eventually turn out. This is a really sort of an unanswered question uh, under Missouri law, whether or not uh, uh, discriminating against the same-sex couple is is uh, is is a, f- a form of uh, sex discrimination, um, and uh, whether or not the Fair Housing Act. Uh, the Federal Fair Housing Act, whether it uh, w- would protect uh, a same-sex couple. I mean, it's, uh, this is the beginning of uh, – we're going to see a lot of cases. It's a little bit like the Masterpiece Cake case we had uh, during the, the last Supreme Court term. The baker who refused to bake a cake for right. a same-sex couple. Where yeah. you have this clash between um, the full rights for same-sex couples – on the one hand, and not discriminating against same-sex couples uh, in society uh, versus the religious uh, freedom claims of various proprietors. I mean, so it was the cake baker and masterpiece cakes. Here it's the religious uh, institution that runs the retirement center. I mean, the retirement center has as part of its um, um, part of its uh, bylaws uh, a religious orientation. By the way, I, I believe they've issued a statement saying that they are taking a look at the lawsuit and and uh, you know reappraising the situation. One would imagine that if they go ahead and litigate it, they will assert some kind of First Amendment defense under you know the free speech clause, under the free exercise clause, and how that would be resolved remains an open question because the Supreme Court didn't really answer those questions in Masterpiece Cake Shop. Very specific rules that they have uh, with regard to married couples living in this institution must be men and and a woman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it, for me, this case is uh, it underscores why the Masterpiece Cake Shop outcome was so sort of underwhelming and disappointing. Uh, because this is obviously something that many people are facing all over the country. And the the open question that remains is the sort of degree of discrimination that we're going to mm-hmm. tolerate as a society. Mm-hmm. And the focus on the kind of sincerity of the view, the sincerity of the discrimination to me is um, kind of a misdirection. I think are, it misses the point. Are same-sex couples a protected class? Well, they're they're not – no, I would I would I would say no, except when Depend, it comes yeah, to marriage. Which, which depends on what the question is, right? right. I mean, so if there was a <clears throat> if there was a state law that said um, it's you know two people can't live together, mm-hmm. that would be unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't tell you answer the question of how a private organization can structure its affairs and set rules for who can live uh, in its communities. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and so that's why you know, Obergefell versus Hodges, the Supreme Court case, recognized this right to same-sex marriage, but that right may not be that meaningfully helpful to a lot of people if they're living in a jurisdiction that doesn't provide any legal protections uh, for people with that status. What are they seeking? What are these two women seeking? Do we know? Uh, I, I believe they're seeking a court order to uh, to the retirement center to require them to um, uh, you know change their policy and admit them, and also damages that they say that they uh, encompass. You know, canceling trips. I mean, they're 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 uh, they had already put down a deposit, which I guess. Was returned to them, but they also have, they have some a damage claim. Also, it's hard to believe that they might want to live there after all of this. <laughs> right. well, apparently, they had. Well, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I I read the complaint and it didn't. It wasn't clear to me whether you know they would still want to live there. They apparently had friends there who encouraged them mm-hmm. to live there. My understanding yeah. is this is the only community um, in this area that allows you to keep paying the same rate even if you need an advanced level of care and there's some financial reason why they really uh-huh. would like to be there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, again, that's just uh, getting started, I'm sure. Yeah. We'll have a lot of traction. I mean, the Missouri Supreme Court has a couple of pending cases on the question of whether or not uh, uh, discrimination against sex covers discrimination against uh, based upon sexual orientation. So the, however the Missouri Supreme Court resolves those cases in the next few weeks probably mm. uh, might have some effect on the state part of the claim. Okay. Well, let's move on then. We'll watch that as it develops. Uh, most people are familiar with this story. A group of black Washington University students stopped by, uh, by Clayton police after a complaint that some African-Americans had left a local restaurant without paying. The officer made them return to the restaurant where it was determined that they, in fact, were not the people that, uh, that had done that. Yeah. Um, Blake, is this a clear case of racial profiling? Sure. Of course it is. I mean, it's just another in a long line of um, cases here in St. Louis as well as across the nation where, you know, being black in society serves as suspicion in and of itself of some sort of unlawful activity. And here, you know, the, the, it's telling that the students actually showed receipts and still were made to sort of march back. So there's, it's hard to overcome this presumption of guilt oftentimes that uh, young black people and black people generally face when, when encountering law enforcement. Uh, and the question for me, you know, one of the things that was really interesting is uh, the response from Clayton, from the, I think, Clayton Police Department in part was, you know, we're going to make some reforms including – uh, body cameras for police officers, which to me seems like a sort of bizarre response to that kind of a problem. It's kind of a non sequitur. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How exactly would body cameras have assisted in that situation? Better uniforms, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, let's just spend some more money on something for police. So I think, you know, too often we're not quite willing to take a more structural approach and say, you know, why are police involved in this situation at all? Mm-hmm. Maybe it means you need less police if that's what they're spending their time doing. Right. I mean, you know, it, was, it seemed like they did. The, pol- <coughs> the Clayton police clearly didn't have probable cause to take away their freedom and march them back to the, to the IHOP mm-hmm. uh, because they didn't fit the description and they had receipts showing they paid for, they paid for their food. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, how in the world? Uh, so I think the Clayton police clearly violated their their rights. Mm-hmm. You know, Bill McClellan had an interesting column on this uh, over the weekend. It's fairly controversial, in which he basically said, what is an officer to do if uh, he's told that uh, several black men left a restaurant without paying and he sees several black men, uh, is he supposed to just ignore that fact or shouldn't he stop them? 
Like, <laughs> you're, just, you're just setting me up. I mean, I think <laughs> Bill McClellan and many others might feel differently if there were routinely descriptions of, you know, bands yeah. of white men doing things and white men were just routinely being pulled over and hauled off to places um, at the threat of arrest and violence and et cetera. You know, it, it struck me as really quite remarkable just about four years after Ferguson that uh, this sort of thing is continuing to happen because mm-hmm. there was so much, I use air quotes over conversations because conversations <laughs> are conversations, that this sort of thing is still going on and, and, sure. and in this manner. Yeah. Any thoughts about well, that? We are approaching that anniversary. I, I mean, it's not only still going on, but I mean, there's, there's all sorts of reasons to think that a lot of things haven't improved. Uh, in June, you know, there was the... The attorney general released the report showing that 80 uh, blacks are 85 percent more likely mm-hmm. to be stopped than, uh, than I guess, white, mm-hmm. uh, uh, white suspects. And, um, and that's the worst uh, statistic in, in, since yeah. I think they've been t- taking the, uh, you know, taking the stu- since the study's been required. And so it doesn't seem like we are necessarily – making a lot of progress. I, I, I love Bill McClellan, but I, I thought that was a, I mean, a very, I thought that was one of his weaker columns. Tony Messenger was much more on the, on the money and very strongly, you know, pointing out that, that these kids uh, did, didn't, uh, these young men, uh, I guess they were all, I guess they were all men. Are they I, think, sh- I think so. There's uh, ten of them, if I believe. Um, the, excep- the, the, exceptional young men. Exceptional. These were not just kids right. that were going to college. These were exceptional kids. Yeah, and it was it was interesting that um, uh, you know I guess some of the uh, some of the people coming to WashU as freshmen, some of the African American young men uh, wondered if this was really a good place to be. To be coming, given Ferguson uh, and and the, and and St. Louis's racial history, and mm-hmm. you, so you know, and then <laughs> this is their introduction. Right. I mean, it's well, it's so it's so wrong and embarrassing. And let's not forget the NAACP admonition to African Americans: don't bother to come to St. Louis. Advisory, yeah, yeah, that's, absolutely. That's certainly been something that um, over at WashU we've been concerned about: how is that going to affect recruiting? We're you know trying to hire a lot of talented minority faculty members. Mm-hmm. I mean. Um, that that wasn't great, and having continued stories like this in the news um, aren't great for this for the school and for the region. Well, the university didn't waste much time in yeah. coming out and very strongly. Yeah, I was I was very proud thing. of uh, <clears throat> Chancellor Wrighton and, and Provost Thorpe. I mean, they 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 didn't mince words; they were very emphatic um, in what they said, and they were quite critical of the Clayton Police Department and to a degree that that surprised me. Yeah. Well, Clayton is uh, studying it. That, that's the word that we have is looking into the situation <laughs> yes. and, and reviewing it. Uh, I, I guess I guess there was an apology a couple of days afterwards, um, but I'm, I'm not sure if it <laughs> if if it went quite far enough. We have a caller here who wants to comment on Bill McClellan's column. I have to take a break, but let's get his quick uh, call and then we'll move on. Jay, you're on the air. Go ahead. Yeah, I just say, what is the officer supposed to do? And there was no threat of violence. They just wanted to question him. They stopped the group. I don't understand the uh, the turmoil. And I think they would have done that if it would have been a group of white guys that uh, would have been leaving the restaurant, too. It's just basic PD work. Jay, thank you for the call. We've, uh, we've, we've been over this. Anybody want to add to well, it? I mean, num- number one, they didn't fit the description. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, after after stopping them, I mean, even if you can say, well, because of the call, they could question 
these people who didn't fit the description, uh, which I, I find a little bit hard hard to follow. But even after uh, after that, once the pr- the proof of purchase was produced by the students, then there was absolutely no probable cause that the police had to take away their freedom and march them back to the IHOP. Am I, at least that's my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And I would just say to Jay that the fact that this is basic PD work is precisely the problem. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's leave it at that. We have to take that break. We'll do that. Come back. I want to pick up on the, the Ferguson anniversary forthcoming when we get back. Uh, this is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Now back to our legal roundtable panel, Bill Freivogel, professor of journalism at SIU Carbondale, Blake Strode, Executive Director of Arch City Defenders, and Dan Epps, Associate Professor of Law at Washington University. Well, let's hang with this Ferguson anniversary uh, story for a little bit. Uh, uh, August 14th will mark the fourth anniversary of the shooting death of of Michael Brown. Um, How how far have we come? We alluded to that a few moments ago, but uh, has the legislature acted in a way that really has made any improvements? Uh, Law enforcement, where are we? You want to start that, Blake? I know this is one of interest to you. Yeah, I mean, I think... um the changes by policymakers have been pretty minimal. Uh, there were changes to state law. You know, SB 5 is what most people are aware of in terms of capping municipal court revenues and um, doing away with FTAs as separate charges, um, prohibiting jailing for low-level traffic commences, things like that. Pretty basic changes. Uh, and there were some changes also in the from the Missouri Supreme Court in terms of Supreme Court rules for municipal courts. Uh, it remains the case, you know, to anyone that goes into these municipal courts on a regular basis, it remains the case that they are filled by mostly poor, low-income people and mostly people of color. Um, and so I think it's, a, you know, similar to the kind of police discussion. We've also had a resistance to structural change in terms of municipal courts. I mean, many advocates have been calling for a consolidation of municipal courts Um to, to have better oversight over some of these institutions so that there's more consistency across the board and less of, a, in, less of an incentive to raise revenue through um, municipal courts for, to fund city services. And we haven't really seen that sort of um, change take off. There sure was plenty of talk. And by the way, I misspoke. The, it was August 9th is the anniversary right. of the shooting, not the 14th. Uh, yeah, surely an awful lot of talk uh, about making these changes. What is it, do you think, Dan? I'll put you on the spot here a little bit. What is it about this community that is, seems so slow to act on issues like this? Well, I'm a relative newcomer to this community, uh, having only moved to St. Louis a couple years ago, so I don't want to necessarily feel like I have, I have the voice of the community uh, or the pulse of the community. But um, I will say a lot of these changes involve uh, vested interest, right? You know, if if we think one of the changes that would make life better for this region is consolidation of municipalities, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, as someone who hasn't lived here for very long, I tend to think, I came in and thought, this is crazy. How many different municipalities do we have? You've got separate mayors and all this stuff. Wouldn't it make sense to consolidate that? But doing that requires 
some people to give up their privileges and their power, and it's very hard to convince people to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, you'll learn when you hear a little bit longer that we talk about that an awful lot, <laughs> but nothing seems to happen. What do you think, Bill? I'll put you on the spot as well with regard. Yeah. You've been here a long time. A long time. I grew up in St. Louis, um, spent most of my life here. Um, I mean, we're, we're oh, <laughs> so, you know, we are the site of all sorts of um, you know, r- racial history um, dr- from, you know, the Missouri Compromise to Dred Scott to the Dred Scott case to Shelley versus Kramer, which was the big Supreme Court case saying you couldn't have uh, – you couldn't – courts couldn't enforce racial uh, covenants, covenants. Yeah. To, yeah. Uh, to the Jones versus Mayer that African Americans could use a civil rights law to get uh, a house in Paddock Hills. Uh, to the St. Louis school desegregation case, which was the biggest uh, and some people think most successful desegregation case uh, and most expensive in the country. Um, I mean, but but, I mean, we seem to be, I mean, we're the site of all of this sort of racial strife and so often we're slow to learn the lessons. That that really came, came through to me um, a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was, uh, when there was that photo uh, in front of the arch, uh, you know, rededicating the arch um, <laughs> oh, yes. after the renovation. And it was, once again, all white um, city officials who were in the photo. It was just, you know, almost like the original photo back in 1960-whatever, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when the arch was completed. And to think that, <laughs> to think that after all these years, after Ferguson, that that we would end up with that photo and that people, people wouldn't have realized before they snapped the shot and sent it out to the to the newspapers uh, is just uh, pretty pretty incredible. It's just symbolic, I think. Of mm-hmm. uh, it's symbolic. So you know we, we try hard, but boy, we have a long long way to go. Well, I would I would challenge that we try hard. Okay, I I, try hard I, I'll concede that right, <laughs> <laughs> right off the bat. But you're certainly right about the fact that no one in that line of uh, that broad white line in mm. front of the arch thought to say, "Wait a minute, something something is uh, is missing here." Mm. Is there a legal remedy that you can think of for any of these things? I mean, there has been some attempt at legal action, but again, nothing really seems to have, have transpired. What kind of legal remedies are out there that we could uh, You utilize? mean like a court-enforced remedy? What, yeah, whatever, to, to, to make things better. It seems like a lot of the change is going to happen at the legislative level if, if part of the problem is you know where power is allocated and how municipalities are you know created. It, it, seems hard to imagine that, that courts can fix that, but I imagine Blake, yeah, Blake I don't could have more ideas. One of the um, – I would say one of the rare, brighter spots over the past few years um, is – you know, there was some reporting in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch a couple of months ago on the decrease in municipal court revenues across the board and um, profiled some <clears> of <throat> the highest, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent drops, which corresponds to fewer warrants being issued, fewer people sitting in jail. Um, and that – I would argue, has been the result of lots of advocacy, lots of litigation. I think seven of the ten that were listed in the top ten 
are cities that we've been involved in litigation against uh-huh. just at our city defenders, um, along with places like Slew Law Clinic and Campbell Law Firm. So uh, I think the, the litigation is important in that it imposes real costs on some of these um, municipal actors and, and public entities generally. And sometimes that's the only thing that really um, urges change. And the Arch City suit against, was it Jennings? Yes. Resulted in a, 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 a strong court order and a settlement. Right? That's right. That was... Um, you know that 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 improved conditions there, and we have the uh, you know the there's a combination of municipal courts uh, in North County uh, that have taken over for uh, some of the individual courts that had problems. Mm-hmm. Um, there are fewer municipalities now. 80, I think we're down to 88 from 98. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a little yeah. bit of progress. Yeah. Um, but but there's but the problems you know still exist. I think have you suggested at one point that there shouldn't be uh, enforcement of of, law, of traffic violations? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, a gross over enforcement. I mean, there's any number of quote unquote infractions that I think you could just stop uh, criminalizing essentially mm-hmm. tomorrow and have no cost to society, and it would greatly improve the lives of entire communities. I mean, I look at things like um, no insurance charges. Now, there's there's plenty of good reasons to have car insurance, mm-hmm. but why is the fact that someone can't afford car insurance then made into a crime, mm-hmm. even, even a low-level one? Um, so that's, you know, that's the meaning of the term poverty crime. That's why we mm-hmm. use that phrase sometimes, because these really are uh, ordinance violations, infractions that stem from individuals' poverty. And, of course, if you have to put someone away, put them in jail while they're awaiting right. whatever, that's, that costs something. Of course. That's cool. Yeah, of course. Okay. Anything else on this? We have a caller who wants to take us back to a previous subject. So before we move on, let's take, bring in Tina calling from Maplewood. Tina, you're on the air. Go ahead. Yeah. Hi. Um, in the, uh, the question about where we've come since Michael Brown was killed, um, I don't think we've come far enough. And I think the previous caller was kind of um, exemplified that Um, we the quote unquote discussions we're having don't seem to be hitting the right audience. They seem to be falling like we're preaching to the choir. And I'm wondering, you know, um, how do we how do we communicate with the people that need to hear that? I think, you know, just um, hit the fact that he didn't understand why those um, Washington U students' um, rights were violated, you know, tells me we're not hitting the right audience um, with these discussions. I'm wondering, like, how can we reach okay. those people? Tina, thank you so much. Anybody have any ideas? Uh, one of the ways to do it is to listen to St. Louis Public Radio and <laughs> hear a discussion <laughs> like this. I, you know, I'd point out, I, I don't think, I don't want to let St. Louis off the hook at all, but I would point out that some of these issues are, are, are even, you know, these are national issues. Um, the, the, you know, the, the Russians interfering with the 2016 election, one of the things they were interfering with was they, they would put out all sorts of Black Lives Matter um, to, to try to get, you know, get, get that content out to people who would then react against it. Uh, I think that President Trump benefited a lot from the reaction to the whole Black Lives Matter um, that, that, that grew out of Ferguson and other, other events around, uh, around the country. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, this is a, just a, a serious problem we have in St. Louis and, and nationwide. And in some ways, you know, we're, we're taking steps backward. 
Okay, another Ferguson-related, in a way, issue uh, I have on my agenda here concerns the uh, election for prosecuting attorney in St. Louis <laughs> County and the primaries. That will be tantamount to election of whoever wins. Bob McCall, of course, is running again. He's been in office, I think it's 28 years. His opponent is Wesley Bell, who is a councilman in Ferguson. And um, okay, the, I guess the question is, is McCullough likely, I wonder, to pay the price for his performance during the Ferguson situation. He, of course, refused to uh, refused to indict Darren Wilson, the man who shot Michael Brown. Thoughts? He is such a, a powerful politician, and has had such. I mean, he, I mean, he can rightly point to you know, long experience. Um, um, so I guess I think he probably will not will not pay the price. Um, I mean, on the one hand, he opened up more. I mean, he opened up the grand jury record in a way a lot of prosecutors uh, haven't in similar cases. On the other hand, I mean, he's got all this experience, but yet he gave the wrong uh, jury instruction to the you know, instruction on the law to the grand jury that was considering the the Wilson case. So if you if you've got all this all this experience, but you can't get the law right, um, it seems like that's that that's a that's a problem. But uh, I I don't know. I mean, Kim Gardner was elected on a wave of 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 the you know progressiveness that came out of Ferguson, and is that wave still as strong? Is it strong enough to overcome an entrenched incumbent like Bob McCullough? Especially in the county, right, county. as opposed to the city. Yeah, I don't. I guess I don't think so. I, I think uh, you know people are seeing some things across the country that maybe is giving them some thought that experience uh, might be a liability now. They're they're really turning out some candidates who have been around for a long time. The New York case is the uh, most vivid one that I can think well, of. Also the president. Well, yeah. <laughs> we'll get to him a little later as, as, as time allows. But um, anyway, we'll see. We'll see if that, that kind of mood is, exists here. Did you yeah. want something? I will just say that um, exercising the kind of power that a prosecutor exercises for that long, for 28 or maybe you know 30 some years, mm-hmm. I mean that's that's a very unusual, uh, and you know makes you wonder if some kind of term limit for that that job might be called for. Also, also uh, Wesley Bell is no slouch. I mean he's a very uh, bright young guy. He's got former public defender, as I recall, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he's got his act together completely, yeah. as far as I can yeah. see. Yeah, I mean I don't I don't know what will happen on August August seventh, yeah. um, but and. Disclaimer, Arch City Defenders does not endorse candidates. But um, I do think it's encouraging that people are recognizing the sort of outsized role of prosecutors in our criminal legal system and the level of discretion that they have um, and the contribution that they make to problems like mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. I think it is a critical point to understand. Okay, next subject, unless someone has something to add, I want to talk about the uh, the duck boat incident, that, that great tragedy down at Table Rock Lake. All those people killed, many of them children, uh, but uh, it, it is no surprise that uh, the lawsuits are beginning to be heard. Uh, certainly, Dan, you're not surprised by the fact that they're looking for $100 million plus for the uh, surviving families of these folks. Yeah, not at all. I would imagine there to be very, very high demands in this uh, case, and I would be you know, surprised if we didn't see some attempts to settle them by the insurance companies for big dollar amounts. Well, the uh, the company that owns the boat and owns that franchise, Deep Pockets, I mean, uh, they've, they, they've yeah. got the money to, to spend if, if it comes to that. So 
Anyway, well, yeah. unless, unless you have something to add to them. No, I mean, it would seem as though there was mm-hmm. certainly a lot of negligence or fault yeah. involved in, in, it, in the tragic incident. Enough so that Josh Hawley has now entered the picture and yeah. has announced uh, today, I guess last night, that he's going to file uh, some criminal charges in the, in the case. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a little surprised it took him that long, <laughs> given that he's running for, for office. Well, well, he is busy running for, <laughs> busy running for office. Okay, uh, working can, out. Yeah, yeah, we can dispose right. of this next one probably fairly quickly because we discussed it before. What are we learning about uh, about our our uh, Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh during the courses he's making the rounds on on Capitol Hill? Uh, do we know much more about him than we did at the beginning? And if we do, what is it? I, I don't think there have been any major revelations um, <clears throat> since he was first named. I mean, I think that. Basically, the, the 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 basic facts remain the same, which is that he's very well qualified and he's extremely conservative, mm-hmm. and he will likely push the court in a more conservative direction. He's, you know, a very genial guy. I think he'll be good at sort of forging coalitions on the court. You know, I think he's a very effective speaker. I think he will do a better job in his confirmation hearings than Justice Gorsuch did at making himself seem reasonable and likable. But you know, he's extremely conservative, and you know, he was selected in large part for that reason. Isn't there some evidence that uh, if he did make it to the court, that he would probably be supportive of uh, of a firing of Robert Mueller? You know, I, I think there's reason to think that. He's, he's you know, there, there's indications both ways. Obviously, he worked uh, as part of the Ken Starr Independent Council, but then in subsequent writings, he indicated uh, agreement with the um, Scalia critique of that law, uh, saying it's inconsistent with executive power. I mean, the, the thing to recognize, though, is that it's unlikely the Supreme Court is going to have to resolve that question because there is no statutory legal protection for uh, the special prosecutor. He's not an independent counsel. You know, he's there's certain regulations in place, but those regulations can be overturned by the attorney general and he can be fired. And so if the president wants to fire Mueller, he can do so. And the the remedy is, is a political one. The check is political rather than legal. I wonder, though, if his kind of uh, attitude towards those issues would could potentially come up if um, if if Trump refuses uh, to voluntarily talk to Mueller, and if Mueller were to decide to uh, bring him subpoena him before a grand jury, then the question: Can you subpoena yeah. a president to appear before? A grand yeah, jury? and some people have been you know digging into past write, writings and statements by Judge Kavanaugh, and there's one where he indicated he might have uh, thought that the result. Uh, in the Nixon case involving a subpoena for the tapes was was the wrong result, and so people that got people a little agitated. Right. I mean, the more I've read about about Kavanaugh's record, the more I feel convinced that he is. I mean, he he in replacing Kennedy, if he is confirmed, you know, he will be cons- substantially more conservative. I mean, take take the case that we began with. Uh, you know the masterpiece cake and the and the couple that wants to get into the retirement home in Sunset Hills. You know this this conflict between uh, religious f- freedom and discrimination against same sex uh, uh, same sex couples. Um, uh, I, I can't. I, I I think if you look at his record, he is more likely to be a, a defender of the religious on the religious freedom. End of that. And if yeah. you look, I mean, he gave he gave a speech um, uh, last September um, on pretty pretty explicitly on Roe versus Wade. Um, I mean, he didn't say whether he would overrule Roe versus Wade, but he extolled 
um, uh, former Chief Justice Rehnquist's dis, uh, dissent in Roe versus Wade, and um, saying that this was the right that, that, that Rehnquist had the right way to find uh, any unenumerated unenumerated rights in the Constitution, abortion being one of the unenumerated rights uh, that is now currently recognized. And, and you know, uh, Rehnquist said you shouldn't recognize an unenumerated right unless there's a long history and the tradition and conscience of the country, and clearly that wasn't the case with abortion. Well, clearly that's not the case with same-sex marriage either. Uh, so it, it's, it seems unlikely he would find um, he, he would find either of those rights in the Constitution if he gets if, if he gets presented by those issues. I have to take a break, but let me ask quickly: Is there anybody here on this panel who thinks he will not be confirmed, barring you know something very unexpected, something some revelation about his personal life? I think he will be confirmed. Yeah, I think he, I think it will be too. You know, unless there's some way that the Democrats can can delay it after the election. Uh, you know, they're seeking all of these uh, White House era. Uh, records of his uh, that were turned over in, by Elena Kagan in a similar kind of situation. Uh, if they get it, if they can get pa- into the election, pass the election, and if they can gain control of the Senate, then they could stop him. Lions. Those are two big, <laughs> two very big ifs. <laughs> okay. Well, that, well, remind folks once again that elections uh, do have consequences. Yeah. So we'll see how that turns out. Let's take that break now. We'll come back and continue this. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back to our Legal Roundtable panel discussion with Blake Strode, Executive Director of Arch City Defenders, Dan Epps, Associate Professor of Law at Washington University, and Bill Freivogel, Professor of Journalism at SIU Carbondale, lawyers all. Before we continue our discussion, we have a caller who wants again to take us back just a little bit in our discussion. That would be a Greg calling from St. Louis. Greg, you're on the air. Go ahead. Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen. Hey, I had a, I got a question for the panel. Um... Well, Missouri legislators had passed a bill that went into effect uh, January of this year where uh, a first-time nonviolent felon can have his record expunged uh, with certain criteria and stipulations to it. Well, I am a nonviolent uh, first-time uh, uh, felon, and I obtained a lawyer to go through the paperwork. So the lawyer got the paperwork done, and uh, and the Missouri uh was $250, I think it was $250 or $275 to file. Well, to make a long story short, that was in February. Uh, my lawyer hadn't had any uh, uh, notice from the courts, so months later, uh, he goes down there, they said, well, the other filing they couldn't find. So he had to refile it again, then on top of that, they added on extra charges. They said that it was $250 for filing, another extra $100 uh, $60 for uh, uh, some type of filing fee. Then if you had a conviction that it was another $150, then on top of that, plus $72 uh, for the sheriff's uh, office to serve the prosecuting attorney's office. And I was just trying to get uh, uh, understand how can, if the Missouri legislature had passed uh, this bill and actually put the charge on how much it would cost, then for the, the city of St. Louis to add on all these charges after the fact. Greg, Greg, we have the idea. Uh, Thanks very much for the call. Is this a job for our city defenders? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, thank you, Greg. 
this to me just points to the fact that there's, you know, there's the law on paper and then there's the law in practice and mm-hmm. there's how these things actually play out, particularly when you're someone with limited resources, when you don't have, you know, a bunch of discretionary funds to pay a lot of court fees and that the system just doesn't work mm-hmm. for people in Greg's mm-hmm. situation, that it is extremely hard to get any kind of equitable outcome for people who, especially if you have a criminal record, mm-hmm. the first he started out as saying there, there are certain sort of caveats in that expungement law. There are many. It's mm-hmm. actually pretty hard to, to fit into the um, uh, narrow category that is envisioned yeah. in that expungement yeah. law. And so, uh, you know, when we, when we craft these laws, I think we are oftentimes crafting them not with the most vulnerable, most marginalized mm-hmm. people in mind, but in fact for a sort of, you know, perfect actor and, you know, well-resourced litigant that that is pretty rare in our system. You know, it, it doesn't take much uh, imagination to think of someone like Reagan. I'm not saying this would be the case, but someone like that who was suddenly hit with hundreds and hundreds of dollars mm-hmm. of bills of going out and holding up, a, you know, a, a store, what have you, to raise that money. I mean, that's kind of the vicious cycle we we talk about, isn't it? Yeah. That, that's not legal advice, though. No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 certainly not. Yes. Okay. Um, well, good luck. Good luck. I, I hope. Yeah. Uh, I hope you get get through it. And um, it sounds re- re- pretty rough. Yeah. Any recommendations as, as to what he can do? Is there some place he could go to, you know, get this uh, sorted out? Well, I'm glad he has a lawyer. Um, I, obviously, I don't know who his lawyer is, but. Uh, that's already a a huge first step that most people do not have yeah. the benefit of. So yeah. I, you know, would just say keep working with <clears throat> your lawyer, and you really do have to sort of remain very vigilant in um, trying to get these things, see these things through to conclusion. Right? And probably even at the higher rate of what a thousand dollars that you're up to now, it's probably probably worth it in the long run. Yeah. Like yeah. To keep pushing and get it done. Yeah. Right. Okay, I'll do something sort of freeform now. I'd like to get in and get your views on what the heck is going on in Washington with Michael Cohen and some of the things that uh, have been uh, revealed as a result of his taping and what have you, uh, the payoff to the uh, Playboy model and the fact that he's saying that that um, President Trump knew what was going on in Trump Towers. We've got Rudy Giuliani running around contradicting himself all over the place. <laughs> you know, wh- what do you make of it? Bill, I'll start with you and just go right down the aisle. What, okay. give, give me your thoughts about what's going on. Well, it, it, is, it is incredible. Um, the, you know, this uh, story that uh, CNN and NBC had about uh, Cohen saying that, uh, the pre- that Trump, candidate Trump, knew in advance of the June 9th, 2016 meeting between his son, Manafort, Kushner, and the Russian uh, lawyer close uh, to the Kremlin, uh, that that the president knew about that in advance, even though he has claimed uh, that he didn't know anything about it. Um, So this is is what Cohen uh, told CNN. I think it was actually Carl Bernstein uh, Mm -hmm. of Watergate fame who who had that story. and, and and then you know quite quite amazing is that the the, the White House has now are, are, have changed their response and so instead of saying uh, I mean they're still saying well it really wasn't any collusion but if there was collusion that's not a crime anyway uh, so, Giuliani so that, yeah, yeah. Giuliani, so they've they've and I think I think the president may himself actually have have made that change also so I mean they're clearly trying to. Uh, <laughs> it seems as though they think there was going to be enough evidence of collusion or a conspiracy, you know, to use a legal term, a conspiracy, um, 
and that they're trying to, you know, trying to protect themselves for what's down the road. That's the strategy you're saying is that self, seems to self, be the self-protection. Why have why fall back if yeah. you don't have to fall back, right? If uh, if in fact this turns out to be true re- with regard to the Trump Tower meeting, Blake uh, Don Jr. has testified under oath that uh, to the contrary, he's in big trouble if uh, that turns out to be the case, isn't it? Sure, if rules still apply, <laughs> you know, if we still have laws, if they, you know, if the president's family is subject to them, yes, in theory. Um, you know, it's like how much of this can we watch play out? I represent, we represent in our city people every day who are getting prosecuted on far less evidence than there seems to be against many people surrounding this president. And to what effect? You know, these are political problems at the end of the day. We had the caller that asked about, you know, people having their own sort of bubbles and the information doesn't, um, doesn't get through. And that's what we have here. We have many people that believe this is all fake news, that none of this matters, that it's just Hillary Clinton and her allies trying to get back at Trump for winning the election. And until you change enough of those minds that the people on Capitol Hill feel like it's their responsibility to hold the president accountable, I don't really see where anything. I'm surprised this. Benghazi hasn't come up in the last couple of months. <laughs> you know, Dan, what do you make of all yeah, this? Yeah, well, I, I share uh, Blake's concern that you know we're in such an era of polarization mm-hmm. that you know, Trump famously said he could, you know, shoot someone on, I don't remember if it was Fifth Avenue, one one of the major thoroughfares in New York, and nothing bad would happen to him. And that sort of seems to be true, that the people who support him, Republicans, just, it, it's not clear what it would take uh, for them to change their minds. There's been enough bad stuff that has come out. But I, I would just stress how little we know right now. Um, the special prosecutor's office has been extremely tight-lipped. They're running an incredibly disciplined operation, and they have put together um, one of the most stunning arrays of legal talent that has been assembled. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's not an exaggeration. Uh, and they're moving slowly and methodically, and they're in, rolling up cases one by one. And we have no idea what they're going to come up with. And they're not done. They're not close to done. We, we have to assume they know an awful lot more yes. than we do. Yes. There's no question about yeah. that. What, and, and Paul yeah. Manafort, of course, his trial begins today, and uh, that may produce some very interesting uh, uh, evidence and, and testimony. Um, let me go back, though. You're all lawyers. Um, Rudy Giuliani. I mean, what's your assessment of what this guy is doing? He is I mean, comically inept. I, I think he has no <laughs> idea what he's doing. Uh, I think he is just too used to shooting his mouth off on cable news, and he do, he's sort of lost track of actually being a real lawyer. Uh, I don't think he's been a real lawyer for a very long time. I mean, I think even when he was the you know U.S. attorney for Southern District, I mean, he was basically a politician who was running the show at a high level. And I, I don't think he's doing his client any favors. I, I think he's really embarrassing himself and hurting his client's legal case. Do you think, Blake, would you think that this is a strategy to, to, to keep the uh, waters so muddy that uh, we all remain as confused as we are? Maybe. I mean, <laughs> yes, I agree as a – uh, from a legal standpoint, it seems completely inept. But, you know, the strategy does seem to be keep repeating the words fake news and no collusion until, you know, blood comes out of the St. Louis radio panel's ears and <laughs> all of Trump's voters believe it. And unfortunately, it's been kind of effective, actually, so far. Well, so we'll see what happens. That is true because the, the, the Trump uh, popularity remains w- right where it has been, yeah. been for, the, for the most part. He's right, uh, right around at uh, 41, 42 percent approval. And it doesn't seem as though, I mean, he can, you know, do what he did uh, 
uh, you know, his we have his weak press conference with Putin. You would think that would have some effect. It didn't seem to have much effect. Uh, the Cohen uh, uh, revelations about him possibly knowing in advance of the Trump Tower meeting that seems to have had very little effect over the uh, just today. He's I mean he's really good. He, one of his uh, tactics is if you call me something, I'll call you that. Same thing. So he called the press unhinged today because, <laughs> you know, of course, many people have called him unhinged. And over the weekend, he had a fight with, um, you know, he was on a back and forth fight with uh, Arthur Sulzberger, the 37-year-old uh, new publisher of the of the New York Times last week. The White House said that a CNN reporter who uh, had yelled out a question about the Cohen uh, you know the Cohen revelations and whether he was whether the president was worried about them. They then denied that CNN reporter uh, an opportunity to be at one of what they call the you know, the sprays, the news sprays uh, in the White House. Of uh, and so his, I mean, it, it is very much a war on the press and and a war on truth. And uh, he, it, it's amazing to me that forty percent of the people. Don't care. Yeah, and ninety percent of the Republicans. Uh, st- eighty-eight. Yeah, eighty-eight. Support them. Yeah. Well, let's stay with this CNN. This uh, the Caitlin Collins story. She's the one who was uh, ban- banned from attending a subsequent event uh, in-, in the White House. You're the you're the journalism professor and a longtime <laughs> journalist, and there are some reports coming out of the White House saying that <clears throat> Trump's plan is to punish reporters. Any any of them. You know, taking it beyond just calling it fake news, but to literally punish them by not letting them do their job. Well, yeah, I I think that that this would be an example of um, of that. I mean, her questions. I, I'm not a big fan of the press shouting out uh, questions, but you know, when you don't have that many press conferences, there it really is the only way to try to try to get the news of the day. Um, and get some response from the president. These the questions that she asked, I thought were all just fine. Did Michael Cohen betray you, Mr. President? Mr. President, did Michael Cohen betray you, Mr. President? Are you worried about Michael Cohen? What is about to say uh, to the prosecutors? Are you worried about what other tapes say, Mr. President? Why is Vladimir Putin not accepting your invitation? I mean, these are all proper questions to put to the president. And then she gets she gets punished for it. Uh, president has gone after uh, uh, other CNN uh, White House reporters, mm-hmm. and and you know refused as has uh, as has Sanders, the press secretary, and refused to answer the questions. Uh, it, it's nice, uh, at least at least this time around, it seems as though Fox uh, News has supported the CNN. Uh, reporters mm-hmm. and said that uh, you know that they don't want to see that kind of thing happening, uh, and it's not. I mean, th- there was a point at which Obama, uh, the Obama press operation, was uh, trying to deny access to Fox. So it's it's not something that the, the, that hasn't happened before, but it's never happened to this kind of this kind of extent before. Dan, is there a, a, potentially a First Amendment issue here if he is preventing a reporter from doing his or her job? Or is that a little bit too far-fetched? You know, I, th- I think it's somewhat uncharted territory, but I, I think that there's definitely um, – there are arguments that could be made, but they would be kind of difficult arguments is mm-hmm. my, my view. Do you have any thoughts on it, Blake? Or is that in, you, in your bailiwick, <laughs> in your purview? Yeah, <laughs> not professionally, no. Um, yeah, I just think this, this 
president has shown many, you know, autocratic tendencies and violations of institutional norms. And people keep sort of saying, what happens when we get to a constitutional Mm -hmm. crisis? And it strikes me that we're probably at that moment already where we uh, have a president that's sort of run amok and we have the the checks on him that aren't operating as as we envision them to operate. We, uh, we have two minutes left, and I just wanted to bring it up. I, I don't think there's necessarily a big legal issue here that, that we can deal with, but Claire McCaskill now apparently is in the crosshairs of, uh, of the Kremlin because uh, the allegation is that uh, now her office has been hacked and uh, that the Kremlin wants to influence the election here in the state of Missouri. Um, thoughts, Bill? Well, it's an important election, uh, and I uh, – I, I, if I were Claire McCaskill, I couldn't be more pleased to, de- to learn this, particularly since it seems as though they successfully they, – they didn't fall for the fancy bear uh, you know, approach of the Russians to try to get them to give them uh, their, their passwords so that they could be hacked. So it seems as though it was an unsuccessful effort to hack. Um, you know, Claire McCaskill was able – just if you look at it politically, Claire McCaskill was able to come out and say, you know, to be portrayed – truthfully, as being a very strong critic of Putin, and she wasn't going to back down to Putin at the same, during the same week that Josh Hawley was standing next to the president and saying, you know, gosh, what a great leader of the free world we have here, uh, only a few days after he was basically kneeling to Putin. Mm-hmm. Blake, I know you're not political, but she is a cagey campaigner, too, and she's got, <laughs> as she had the last time around, she had Dodd Aiken to kind of play with, and now this might be helpful to her. I'll, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it has typically been the case that being anti-Kremlin has been good, but I don't know where we are. <laughs> yeah. Thought, uh, Dan, Sorry, we have about 30 seconds no, I'll just I'll just say that um, Senator McCaskill, I think, has good timing and when her election is. I think if she'd been up two years ago, she almost certainly would have lost. And so, you know, to the extent that there is a little bit of a blue wave happening, it remains to be seen whether that's true, she could uh, catch a break here. A blue wave, but this is a very red state. Yeah, it, yeah. it is. Okay. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Bill Freivogel, our, our regular, thank you. Uh, Dan Epps, thank you very much for being with us once again. And uh, Blake Stroud, thank you so much for being with us as well. Good luck at Arch City Defenders. Thank you. Yep. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.